I think that this moment is an invitation into more organizing, more healing, more strategy, more action. And usually the counter for authoritarian moves, the best counter is mass action. Mass action is incredibly complicated right now. We are irresistible. A community of practice in collective healing and social change. Because our commitment to justice and to our own lives is compelling, joyful, and irresistible. Together, we celebrate the many traditions of movement leaders, cultural workers, and spiritual teachers who remind us to embody the liberation we are pursuing and who show us that our movements for justice can and must be expansive, vibrant, and alive. Because we are so much more than resistance. We are irresistible. Hey everybody, I'm Kate Warning. Welcome to Irresistible, a podcast formerly known as Healing Justice. You can hear more about who we are and what we're about and the many legacies that led us to this new name in one of our previous episodes titled Becoming Irresistible. And you can also learn more about our story at irresistible.org. So each week, we share a conversation or an audio practice to support your healing and your commitment to social justice. This episode is publishing on May 5th, 2020, which is still during the first acute period of sheltering in place in the United States because of COVID-19. I am really proud of the resources that we've been able to put together to support you and ourselves over the past six weeks or so. Conversations that are led by chronically ill and disabled organizers teaching us how to adapt our organizing cultures for this moment. An episode about redistributing stimulus funds to those who need them most. And an episode about grief in the unknown with Roshi Joan Halifax. You can find all of our social justice resources during COVID-19 at irresistible.org COVID. But as the past six weeks have gone by, I have felt increasingly uncomfortable hanging out just in the healing, slowing down, adapting our cultures and mutual aid camps, and really felt the need to turn and face the very serious political threats and strategic decisions that we need to be making right now. The liberate protests of conservatives at state capitals across the Midwest, including my state of Wisconsin, have been happening over the past couple weeks, and there is increasing polarization around reopening the country. It feels like just figuring out how to adapt our current strategies and current organizing work to be more contactless is not a deep enough evaluation. And just slowing down and really uh, taking big cues from this time to change how we show up is also not enough. Like, we need to do some serious political reevaluation here. And so Ejeris Dixon, who's one of our guests today, said to me about a year ago something that really stuck with me as powerful and also, frankly, haunts me. (laughs) Um, Ejeris said something along the lines of, Under fascism, people get really interested in good wine and good cheese. And the reason that statement stuck with me is because I understood it as saying something like, 
when things seem incredibly overwhelming and inevitable on the outside and at scale in the world or in our country, there's the risk of turning our focus to small pleasures that are within our control as a means of tuning out that overwhelm or that sense of pending doom. And an important part of healing and organizing with our whole selves is really to turn and face what is happening. My friend Yotam Marom talks about good strategy requiring telling ourselves the truth about what is happening and what is necessary. And so when I saw Ejeris' recent article in Truth Out titled, Fascists Are Using COVID-19 to Advance Their Agenda, It's Up to Us to Stop Them, I reached out and asked if Ejeris and her friend and incredible organizer, Dove Kent, would be willing to talk to us about building power and adapting strategy under these quickly shifting conditions. For them to be real with us about what is going on, what the opportunities and threats are, and to hold the complexity with us about how we take care of ourselves and each other, many of us are experiencing huge um, emergency needs right now, or people in our communities are, but also staying responsible to the political realities of this time, even though we are facing that pressure. And so I'm so grateful that you're going to get to hear from them as they grapple with this together and let us listen in. And if you haven't read Ejeris's article yet, I highly recommend you visit the page for this episode on our website, which is irresistible.org slash podcast slash 64. That link's also in the show notes on whatever app you're listening. And click through and read that article along with some other resources that Ejeris and Dove mention in this conversation. If you can't do that right now, that's okay. This conversation will still make sense to you without it. And hopefully you can circle back and do some reading later. So we're almost there. I just want to share a couple words about Ejeris and Dove with you so you know who they are. Ejeris Dixon is an organizer and political strategist with 20 years of experience working in racial justice, LGBTQ, anti-violence, and economic justice movements. She is the founding director of Vision Change Win Consulting and co-editor of the book Beyond Survival, Strategies and Stories from the Transformative Justice Movement, which we will be featuring in Irresistible Book Club later this year. Dove Kent is also here and is the Senior Strategy Officer at Bend the Arc Jewish Action. Dove has two decades of experience in grassroots organizing, political education, and movement building, and is the former executive director of Jews for Racial and Economic Justice, or JFRJ. Dove lives in Durham, North Carolina, and Ejeris is in Brooklyn, New York. So both Dove and Ejeris inhabit bodies and multiple identities that have been historically and currently targeted by the state under authoritarian regimes. I am so grateful for the ways that they include that trauma as part of what is being activated right now for so many of us and challenge us to stay committed to action, but maybe to expand what we think that has to look like. So let's dive into the conversation together. Dove Ejeris, would you start by saying a little bit about yourselves and what brings you to this conversation? I can start. Uh, my name is Ejeris Dixon. I'm a longtime organizer, strategist, 
helper. Uh, I coordinate a consulting team called Vision Change Win Consulting, which I almost want to call 1-800-DIAL-AN-ORGANIZER. Uh, <laughs> and I come to this conversation in so many different ways. I came to it with hunger and fear and deep desire. So I started doing community organizing when I was when I was younger, um, when I was around 19 years old. And there's a lot of my history that's within transformative justice movements, within survivor-led movements. So there's a piece of that in that container. Um, I was always tethering with kind of uh, organizing, political action, trauma, healing, and bouncing around and through that, and crisis, right? I've been really obsessed with what fascism means and what fascism and authoritarian, what like a global authoritarian movement means, particularly as a Black queer organizer. And uh, after Trump was elected, I heard people say, um, authoritarian, autocracy, fascist, and I didn't know what it, what it meant. And I wanted to understand it because I wanted to recognize that I was within and organizing within some of the most impacted communities. And so if we were going to need drastic forms of support, we were going to have to know when that would happen. And I had a vantage point where I was not doing frontline organizing, but I was doing support so I could hold back. So, uh, Two months after Trump was elected, I worked with a group of Black organizers in New York City. We created an event around um, what's the connection between a fascist and authoritarian landscape for Black organizers. And since that point, I just have been reading everything I can get my hands on about what this means, what are the political challenges, what are the political opportunities, and how um, and how to support oppressed peoples, and particularly how to support my people to survive and to transform, and how do we build liberated movements, liberated strategies, um, and also how do we have the healthiest formations possible within it. Hmm. Um, there's so much hmm. more I could probably say, but that's, uh, that's <laughs> how I come to this convo. Hmm. Thanks, Ujaris. Um, I'm Dove Kent, and um, I am part of uh, several Jewish organizing projects. Um, currently, I am at Ben the Ark Jewish Action um, and always connected to uh, Jews for racial and economic justice. Um, and now that I am living in North Carolina, um, connected to Carolina Jews for Justice as well. And for many years have been working to rebuild the Jewish left here in the United States. And so there's a relationship with this rise of fascism, with the rise of global authoritarianism um, that our people, peoples have always been building to take on and building to respond to. So I feel very um, in right role with many others in this moment, really taking on um, the task from our grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents and great-great-great-grandparents um, 
to, uh, to take the action that we're called to take now. And I think I'm coming to this conversation with all of that. And then especially, um, thinking about healing, um, Ijeris, uh, you've talked about how there's, there's not actually a dichotomy between healing and action. Um, and that's a conversation about healing that I want us to have, you know, what, what is the healing that enables us to withstand greater uncertainty? What is the healing that propels us to take greater action? What is the healing that supports us to take bolder risks? Um, and what is the healing that helps us to endure? Because healing looks all different ways. That moving from feeling powerless to feeling powerful is also a kind of healing. And so I think it's really important that we break down this dichotomy, as you've said, Ijeris, between action and healing and talk about just what does it mean to step towards the future in a way that we can build what our communities need to survive and thrive. I want to say that me and Dev did not meet at a coalition meeting which is how we could have met, right? Like that would have been very, very possible. We met um, because we were both taking a course with generative somatics. And what I love about you, Dev, and love about what we love strategy. We fight our healing and need it. And we also know what it means to be grounded in legacies of people that, that states have tried to eliminate. And what does it mean to inherit a legacy of resilience and a legacy of trauma and a legacy of incredible movement action? And so I think there's a, there's a tenderness that's in this conversation that comes from that relationship. And, and all that's to say, we're not experts. We're practicing this <laughs> incredibly complicated thing alongside you all and are sharing our thoughts and are open to and are excited for your wisdom in the process as well. It feels really important for us to really fully face and try to understand what are the threats and also what are the opportunities um, that are before us. And so Ijeris, because I love this part of your article where you talk about the fascist emergency playbook, I'd love to start with you of just like, let's have some real talk right now about what is really going on politically in this moment, which is, you know, April 30th, 2020. <laughs> um, what is the fascist emergency playbook and what are the real threats? What are we seeing happening? Absolutely. So the opportunity that we have within this is that um, the playbook is very clear and relatively easy to follow. So an emergency is a place where fascists and authoritarians can take a leap to take away a bunch of rights. Because there's a way that in that kind of cultural, psychological setting of fear and a lack of normal, then the quote unquote normal rules, normal laws, what, however you want to think of that, but what we would think of a standard, it's okay to take them away, right? And so um, one of the turning points in the rise of Nazi Germany was the Reichstag fire, which is when the German parliament was burned. And after that, Hitler declared a state of emergency. It was then okay legally to detain people indefinitely. All of those things kind of happened. So a lot of us have been waiting for like, what is the quality of emergency? Like, 
we are in an, an emergency. We are contending with tremendous trauma and death and illness. And that is absolutely real. And it is being manipulated by a right-wing agenda. Yeah. So the emergency is often used to restrict civil liberties, rights regarding movement, protest and freedom of the press, a right to a trial or freedom to gather. And you can see that as also there are absolute public health needs around how we gather, but there's also a way that they're being enforced. There's the criminalization aspect that is happening that is a choice. There is a way that emergencies can be used to suspend governmental institutions, consolidate power, like reduce checks and balances, reduce access to elections. So we've seen that in New York State, there's not going to be a primary election in New York State um, for safety, right? Um, it also promotes a sense of fear and helplessness. So, um, and that's just a, like a sense of, um, the ultimate power of the state and our individual inability to challenge it. It creates a culture where we consent into these power grabs. Democratic institutions can be replaced with autocratic institutions. It can mean like when you have a separation of powers, it could actually, you can say, well, under the emergency, we no longer need Congress, right? Or, and, and you can even hear um, when Trump said, I think about a week ago, he talked about total authority. I have total authority around reopening, which is not accurate. It's not legally accurate. I'm not a lawyer, but I know enough to know that that is not legally accurate. <laughs> so, um, and then the other piece is so that you do not focus on the reduction of rights, you need to blame it on someone. You need scapegoats, right? So there's the scapegoating of Asian communities. There's the scapegoating of migrants, right? There's all these pieces around the way that the Southern border is being policed. In particular, it doesn't line up with anything else but Trump's agenda, right? Mm -hmm. And so you create scapegoats to distract the public away from the failures of the state. It is not that the state failed to care for us, to accurately prepare, to accurately respond. It's China's fault, right? Like it, it's, it's a distraction tactic. So the reason I outlined the playbook was because some of it was in play and some of it has not happened yet. And so I wanted to just like make it super clear to be like, let us not be surprised by what history has already shown us. Mm. If we're playing chess and you have a list of somebody's moves, like let's actually recognize that these are the moves. And, and the, the part that is a mystery, the part that's opaque is what is the exact link between the pandemic? And that is why we need to do this next step in the playbook. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think one of the risks that we have right now are the very democratic institutions that we think are extremely reliable. Um, I think that we really need to contend with the fact that our democracy is not as stable as we would like to believe that it is. Um, and like you said, that so much of this playbook is about uh, leaders tightening their grip on institutions of power and removing their ability to check the leader. So whether that's Congress, whether that's the courts, whether that's voting, um, some of the 
the ways that we have relied on being able to have some kind of access to power within this country has been through those democratic institutions. And um, I think that this is the place where people need to really ground in, really pay attention, um, really focus to make sure that those rights are not removed. Because once they are, there is really no counter that we will have outside of war. And another piece of that that links to it is what Naomi Klein calls disaster capitalism, uh, which is happening alongside this process. Similarly, that in moments of shock, like wars or natural disasters or economic crisis, that uh, governments and billionaires can instill calculated free market so-called solutions to crises that deepen inequality, that enrich elites, and that undercut anyone, everyone else. And I think this connects back to what you were saying, that um, this continues to amass power um, in both the leader and in the leader's um, uh, trusted uh, comrades and people around them um, who will continue to profit and continue to support and lift up that leader um, to keep their money rolling in. So the uh, these two functions are happening simultaneously and are related to each other in this time. The Republican Party was counting on running on the strength of the economy. So they want the economy up and running as fast as possible. And if they can't get that, they can at least get the blame to fall on Democrats and not Trump. So while this movement of folks working to reopen the economies in different states um, may have attracted a small grassroots following of people who are suffering from job loss right now, um, at its core, this is a right-wing extremist power move. It draws directly um, from the playbook of the Tea Party from 2009 and 2010 and the Trump campaign in 2015 and 2016. And with many of the exact same players organizing it and the same funders behind it. And the end game here is not just for them to reopen the economy and make their billions. Um, it's also to win the presidential election and to keep control of the Senate in 2020. So they're trying to shift the blame for the crisis from Trump to these Democratic state governors, particularly those who are taking the precautions to keep their state safe. Um, they're also trying to divide folks to prevent a unified demand for a federal government response that would allow people to do what's necessary to protect public health without bankrupting themselves. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the good news is that most people aren't falling for it. Um, and even better news that the left is fighting back, you know, in, in just days, we've seen actions around the country led by nurses and doctors and other healthcare workers re representing the millions of us who want to protect people's lives and aren't falling for the idea that it's a choice between dying of COVID and dying of starvation. But there's a complicated piece here for organizers that I just want to mention is that some of these same governors are the folks that our people are targeting in organizing campaigns, demanding for those state governments to end all evictions, cancel rent, house people without homes, release immigrants from detention centers, and provide a social safety net, at least from their state. So this, there's a contradiction that we as organizers can and must hold, that we can stand with democratic governors in supporting the stay-at-home orders against 
this move by the right while simultaneously pressuring them to provide our communities with what we need to stay at home. Mm. I just want to speak a little bit to the the kind of level of complexity or like the, um, I don't know, the, the cultural norms that are being played out in this. I feel like there's some kind of black intergenerational wisdom um, where I, like, I don't know if it's an auntie or someone comes to me and it's and says, when white people talk about needing to be liberated, our, you know, like watch out. And it's this piece around like, that is the code word for like black death, for native death, for, right? Like that's the, like, it's a galvanizing cry, right? And there's so much white supremacy wrapped within it, right? Me, oppressed, me, needing to be liberated, why me, right? Like there's a, there's a piece in that project and it also calls forth the need for a, a counter galvanizing force, right? A counter galvanizing cry like that, the hatred that is being weaponized and played against us, right? And that doesn't have to go down like that, right? Like people are in some ways afraid about very real economic realities that are affecting all of us and some people in disparate ways, right? But that the desire and the need for an even bigger, deeper, more motivating vision that is not based on hatred or elimination of people. Um, so mm-hmm. originally the article was called uh, With Everything We've Got, which was just very poetic, but not very clear. Um, and the reason it was is because I think that this moment is an invitation into more, mm. right? More organizing, right? More healing, more strategy, more action. And it, but it gives us some pieces around complexity. Usually the counter for authoritarian moves, the best counter is mass action. Mass action is incredibly complicated right now. So yeah, more, more. And we have to kind of collaboratively, collectively figure it out. Let's talk about that. I mean, I just want to thank you both for being so honest with us um, about what's happening and about how it correlates to moves toward authoritarianism that are as old as time. And so for folks who are listening that might be feeling anxiety building, take a breath, stick with us. And I also want us to be really honest together about what are the opportunities in the ways that emergency speeds so much up that in ordinary times would take a very, very long time to happen. We're seeing public consciousness and public opinion and a sense of a public common sense being able to be moved very quickly, right? Compared to like quote unquote normal times. And so I'd love to hear from both of you about what are the opportunities that you're seeing right now? Like if there's a fascist emergency playbook, what does the organizing playbook look like or the liberation playbook? What are things you're seeing that give you hope? What do you think are the opportunities that we have? I was recently reminded that the word crisis comes from the ancient Greek word that means turning point um, and that it derives from the verb, which means to decide. So that crisis comes when we reach a breaking point and we have to make a decision about what path we'll take. So that for me alone is actually a reframe that helps me think about this moment and about opportunity. Um, And also um, been reading uh, really good resources. There's one um, 
called Stepping into the Moment, the Coronavirus Crisis as an Opening for Transformative Change. Um, that comes from the Grassroots Policy Project. And they re really pull in um, the thinking of Milton Friedman, um, who was the architect of the neoliberal project. Um, and he famously said that only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. When that crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around. That, I believe, is our basic function, to develop alternatives to existing policies and keep them available and alive until the politically impossible becomes the politically inevitable. So now while I don't believe that we should follow in the footsteps of Milton Friedman, um, we should take this assessment to heart. Um, as Ijeris was talking about around what's possible during crisis, now is also the moment when we can make the changes that our community desperately needs. This crisis is exposing the fundamental contradictions and limitations of our economic system, our health system, our care system. People are seeing that we can't just fix the systems, that the systems themselves are broken. And that creates enormous opportunity. So while we need to be responsive to the needs of our communities suffering right now, we can also demand the kinds of systemic changes that won't, again, put us all in this position. We can lay the groundwork for rebuilding our society on new terms. We can link immediate relief with long-term rebuilding. So, for instance, many states have suspended all evictions. Uh, federal loan repayments are paused. Many cities have suspended their horrible process of clearing the encampments of unhoused people. Thousands of people have been released from jails and detention centers to stop the spread of the virus behind bars. And thousands of mutual aid networks have erupted all over the country. Hotels are housing unhoused people. Workers across the country are striking for safe working conditions. Um, Amazon workers have already made some wins. So, what if this was true all of the time? What would be possible? I'm just taking in everything that you just said, Dove, and I, I, I really love it. Um, it. In a really simplistic way, as from a base building perspective, usually there's a point when you're talking to someone and you're supporting them to get more engaged and or more politically active. And at some point you have to tether with is it really needed? I've got other things to do, right? I don't know if I can do anything of meaning. I think what crisis lets fall away are the failures, right? So there's a level that you can actually accelerate parts of the process where you don't have to go through the, are things really that bad? Do we really need to have this action? Like that part's clear. And now we're tethering in the how with everything that people are holding will they be involved but even that is a framework that is loaded in some level of privilege um, so there are so many movements from disability justice movements the hiv aids movement um, survivor movements where navigating trauma navigating illness sickness navigating health i think there is a piece around what are our practices? Like, how are we taking care of ourselves and how are we taking care of, of each other? And I, and I really love um, Kara Page and Kindred's Healing Justice Framework because it is about the healing that we need to build stronger movements, not the healing that we need to turn away from movement building. And that's the, 
that's the challenge that I want to say. It's not, the goal is not individual neoliberal healed people. The goal is bigger, badder, more resilient, stronger movements with more of us in them. When I think about other opportunities, what I'm really hungry for is a conversation around liberatory governance. And I kind of fell into that because I'm a happy strategist when someone else does the vision. I'm down to do it, but I'm happier when somebody else does it. And I do the how do we get there part. But not having a clear sense of, do we believe in this? I don't think we believe in the system, but do we believe in systems? Is there not a different system? Like just in the very simple of what are we mobilizing for? There's a lot that I think we need to iron out about what that means and what that looks like. We've got so many people who, without the elections being removed from them, are just not, have no desire to participate, right? But these are not people who are not political. <laughs> these are people who are doing other political work um, and who are actively disengaged, upset, infuriated, um, or, or see themselves outside of that work. But it's my contention that we are currently not aligned enough, not connected enough, and not activated enough to beat what's coming at us. And what we need is to be more aligned, more engaged, more connected, and build a deeper base. We need to iron out what we're for, and we need to walk into some difficult conversations as opposed to avoiding them. Hey everybody, this is Kate, just dropping in to take a breath with you as we are learning and turning and facing a lot together in this conversation. One of the things that's really important to us here at Irresistible is not just to share conversations and practices with you, which we love doing through the podcast, but also to find ways to gather in community. And how perfect that during these times, virtual community is more important than ever. We love getting to hang out with the folks who attended our past six-week series of our virtual care circles, which just concluded its first run. And we also really love hanging out with you in book club. So in Irresistible Book Club for the past year, we've been reading quarterly selections together. Um, we have a map of all of our book club members around the world where you can look up people who are close to you um, or in your region or might share similar interests and reach out to them. We share discussion guides to help you be in conversation either with your organization or your own group of friends or folks you meet through book club uh, to discuss questions that the author has provided and also to gather and hear from and be an interactive uh, question and answer with the author at the end of our reading season. And so that time is coming up right now. We have been reading since the beginning of the year together this book called Healing Resistance, A Radically Different Response to Harm. It's by Kazu Haga. There is an episode with Kazu as well as a practice of him leading us in metta meditation a few episodes back in our catalog. And this book is published on Parallax Press, which is the nonprofit publishing division of the Plum Village Community of Engaged Buddhism, which Thich Nhat Hanh founded. So it feels really exciting to be connected to a really strong lineage of 
nonviolent discipline and tactical, uh, tactical focus in this time of challenge and during this strategy conversation, and also the ways that spiritual discipline and spiritual practice are part of how Kazu writes and are part of that tradition of principled nonviolence. And so if you'd like to read the book with us, you can order it from parallax.org with the code podcast for 15% off. And also check out joining us for book club and our upcoming conversation with Kazu at the end of May um, by going to irresistible.org slash book club. We love to read with you. We love to see you posting on social media about what you're learning from the book and are excited to have that interaction soon. And we're especially excited that later this year, Ejeris, along with their co-editor of the book, Beyond Survival, Strategies and Stories from the Transformative Justice Movement, Leah Lakshmi Piepsa Samarasinha, that was on our recent episode about disability justice. We're excited that they are joining us to focus on that book in just a few months. So hope you'll join us in book club and let's get back to the conversation with Dove and Ejeris. Something I've really appreciated, um, especially Ejeris, from your just your focus on base building, and from what I've seen, what I feel like the smart people around me are doing right now is like yesterday I was talking with some folks from Momentum, which is one of my home organizing communities, and asking them what are the biggest strategy questions you have right now, and something that really moved me about the conversation they were having is they're like, the biggest job that we have right now is to build consensus around the problem. They were remembering that Occupy happened three years after the 2008 recession and that in a moment of emergency, it might not be that um, the, the kind of movement action and united demands arise during this moment, but that this moment is incredibly formative for us to be talking to everybody we know and resonating with the pain and the frustration and building consensus around why these problems are happening so that we're building, like as you all are talking about, a bigger we, a bigger us that then has potential for more coordinated action maybe once we're out of this acute period of social distancing and some of our usual options of gathering might come back, you know? I would love to hear like if y'all agree with that or not because that's feeling of great comfort to me because I'm like, oh, that's hard work and it's something I feel like I can do right now. I was joking with some friends and then ended up tweeting about it yesterday around a desire to create a training called For the Love of Organizing. And there's a module that is already called The Gospel of Base Building. Um, but this might be me and church, church jokes and my own sermon. <laughs> but I, when I am most afraid or confused from an organizing perspective, I return to base building because it's never wrong. I'm thinking about if we keep moving on the fascist emergency playbook, we're going to have to take risks together. People take risks in relationship. And so I am fundamentally excited and inspired by all the mutual aid networks. And my deep desire is that people know that while they are providing for their neighbors' needs or supporting each other, they are in a fundamental base building project that is about getting to know each other, deepening with each other, and um, reconstructing the left space. Like there is a lot that 
is happening politically because our base is not as deep or as wide as it needs to be. So if your mutual aid project is only online, how can it be more offline, right? If it's only connected to people who you already know, how can that be expanded, right? It's just deep hunger. For me, I'm not engaged in a mutual aid project right now. I'm in some deep relationship building with my neighbors on my floor, which feels really good to me and feels um, like a site of action and care from how we know who's already sick and who's not, how we know who needs to get where in terms of hospitalization, medication and care. My biggest goal is that we understand that this work is part of a larger political, like liberatory political project. And it is about how we support our people to get their needs met, to build a liberatory future. I agree with that assessment. So I know Ijeris, you mentioned this in your article. Um, How can we connect the dots between the mutual aid projects that are happening locally and a vision for liberatory governance. Um, There is a lot of um, learning that's happening right now just about how people's basic needs are not being met um, even before the crisis and how it's so exacerbated by the crisis. So even just those conversations, like you're saying, happening person to person and then bubbling up collectively um, can help us shape a collective understanding of what is going on in this moment, what the problems are, and what we need to fight for. This is a time to both go deep and go broad. So we need to be having those intimate conversations with the people that we are sharing zip codes and or real present needs with. And it's also the time for us to be raising up our heads and looking around and looking out and connecting community to community to community and beyond. You know, as we start to transition out, there's still this feeling of, even though we're trying to break apart this dichotomy of healing on small action versus like the big, big emergencies that we're facing or the big political questions, there's, there still is this feeling of titrating between those different kinds of needs. And I'm curious about, for both of you, if you felt caught between the internal processes that this season is requiring, both as folks who hold identities that under authoritarian governments have historically and currently been violently persecuted, um, like dealing with what comes up emotionally around that, um, tra- historical trauma that comes up, slowing down, organizationally taking time to reassess and strategize or give our people time off um, to deal with everything that's going on right now. But then also the escalation and the pace of the external needs that are accelerating, you know, no small one of which being that we have a general election at the end of this year. Um, That's really critical. And so I'd love to hear just how are you balancing that push-pull within yourself or if there are organizations or stories that have inspired you about folks who are holding that really well right now? 
Um, I want to share a quote from my uh, first cousin, three times removed, Zivia Lubetkin, who was one of the leaders of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Oh, wow. And in her autobiography published after her death, she wrote this. It would be wrong, painfully wrong, to assume that the resistance displayed by the youth during the stormy days of destruction was the response of a few individuals, of Yitzchak or Zivia or Mordechai or Frumka. Our fate would have been very different had we not been members of the movement. We were able to endure the life in the ghetto because we knew that we were a collective, a movement. Each of us knew that he or she wasn't alone. The feeling that there was a community of people who cared about each other, who shared ideas and values in common, made it possible for each of us to do what he or she did. This was a source of our strength to live. Mm. So in this moment of crisis, we need as much as possible to break out of the idea that we are supposed to do everything as one individual. And part of our healing is shedding that and opening ourselves up to our actual interdependence. An organization that I admire had a staff retreat when the pandemic hit, and they did an internal assessment of who feels energized, clear, and motivated in this moment, and who feels foggy, stuck, or ambivalent in this moment, and who feels clear about what they think the organization's role is right now, Mm. and who doesn't feel clear. Based on their answers to those questions, the group reorganized their leadership, putting the people who had clarity and energy in the position to lead and putting those who were foggy and needing rest in positions where they could do what they needed. And the piece that I want to say about about our communities, I've actually been hearing lots of stories from Jews feeling um, a strange kind of preparedness in this moment. Um, and actually wondering why others weren't heeding the call sooner. Um, Because one response that a community can develop to recurring intergenerational trauma that's found in many Jewish communities um, is a kind of hypervigilance, a waiting for the other shoe to drop, um, and feeling that the conditions of life that we're in are ephemeral, that life as we know it can change at any moment. So in moments of crisis, our ancestral trauma can be revealed as wisdom. Because if trauma is passed down generationally, then resilience is too. So that's really the lesson that I'm leaning into today and that I'm inviting other people to lean into with me. Earlier, Kate, you had talked about the kind of acceleration of the news cycle and the way that things are moving really fast, how easy it is to get overwhelmed and how how people can feel bombarded and incredibly stuck. And that is a part of an authoritarian political project. Bombarding us with news that freezes us is a part of the goal. It creates the hopelessness that keeps us from fighting. There's so much gorgeous beauty in what you were saying and I think a lot about, I, I became a consultant, not out of choice, but out of kind of a deep physical collapse, which is actually when I met you, Dove, um, from about 20 years of organizing, holding my trauma, holding other people's trauma. And I ended up with a level of chronic pain so intense that I wasn't really able, I couldn't Um, stand or walk for more than five minutes at a time without intense pain. 
So all the roles that I knew to play were no longer available to me. And I was in movement spaces where people also didn't know how to hold that and I didn't know how to ask for help. So um, I have to have personal practices to be able to, to be in the work. Otherwise I am not, right? Or I am in a way that's really, uh, my strategy skills um, in deep pain are, um, are there, but not at the same place. And um, so similarly where we need the healing that builds stronger movements, we need the practices that support us in showing up. So I don't have an answer on how to hold it all well, because I don't think it's one answer. It's a constant tethering, similarly to the tethering I do within my own physical body of how much too much, too much, do less, how much, right? Like it's, it's literally, it's, it's in motion and we do it in motion and we do it through care. Um, I have an organizing um, teacher who when conversations around healing and wellness started to come up in organizing, he was, he was chiding me and he was like, that's cute, but you, you know you can't slow down the cycle, which I think Dev was speaking to and which is where I started to think about the work as the work of teams. I know that I'm coming from an incredibly resilient and fearless legacy within Black organizers and Black organizing. Like I was mentored by folks within Black power movements. I don't know what it's like to have the government shoot up my office and then go to the action the next day. But I know I was trained by people who do. Hmm. And it is literally the strength of our movements will be measured by how we hold the terrifying nature of these times within us and in an interconnected way. And we have legacy for that. Like we have legacy and we have history. And so I've spent a lot of time talking with elders about what their lessons are, because I think our job is to build a movement based in the lessons of our elders. And I'm also really struck by how all of our movement elders are high risk because of their age and often have less access to healthcare. Yeah. Right? So I'm, I've been thinking a lot about what does it mean to potentially lose a large portion of one of the most revolutionary generations and one that deeply shaped me? Yeah. And um, it means that I'm going to keep tethering between listening, learning, fighting, sleeping, trying. And it's, I, I don't, I don't think it's as simple as the one thing or the one strategy, right? If there is no time for you to attend to yourself, I want people to challenge that. If there's no time for people to take care of each other, I want people to challenge that. I also want people to challenge the notion, oh, we can't organize because we must heal first. Hmm. There's a lot of folks right now, I'm thinking particularly of essential workers who do not have that privilege. Mm-hmm. So I, I want us to, to recognize that these are both end times. 
and we can find a way to locate our political action in a way that is not inherently deeply unhealthy. And I also want to challenge some aspects of fragility that I see coming up mm-hmm. and, and say, like, I think we have the opportunity to build resilient movements and they will be in the kind of complicated space. Well, I want to thank you both just really from the bottom of my heart for moving into a really challenging invitation, which is in this time of so much not knowing to engage in a a public attempt at grappling with strategy. Um, That's a really vulnerable thing to do. It's a big risk to take. And thank you for your tenacity and the long practices that you've been in of, of unpacking that historical resilience um, and figuring out how you show up to the long game of, of guiding and shaping our movements that now in these moments you're available for us to lean on. And um, thank you so much for your commitment to facing the truth and the scale of what is happening and calling our communities to continue to contend for liberation at the scale that we deserve, despite the pending sense of inevitability that these times could trap us in. So um, really appreciating both of you and excited to see what our listeners really love and learn from this conversation and also have to share out of your own wisdom about how we build power and adapt strategy in these times. So please write to us at hey at irresistible.org or talk to us on social media and we'll stay in some conversation with Ejeris and Dove and uh, let them know what you have to add to this conversation in those ways. So thanks y'all for being here. Thank you, Kate, so much for having us. I'm really honored to, in this moment and possibility to co-create strategy with you and all the irresistible listeners. Yeah, thank you so much. It's really a joy to be in conversation with you at this moment. So many of the people that have been on this podcast are uh, people whose work I love and admire. So it's really a gift to be able to be part of this community thinking together. Mm. Thank you. A deep thank you to Ejeris Dixon and Dove Kent. If you want to read Ejeris' article or look up some of the resources mentioned in this conversation, go to irresistible.org slash podcast slash 64. That link is also in the show notes on whatever app you're listening. As long as you're here, please make sure you follow or subscribe and leave us a positive rating and review. This helps us to be more visible for people to find us and folks who really need conversations like this one to discover them. You can check out our whole vast library of conversations and practices for collective healing and social change on our website, which is at irresistible.org podcast, and especially our curated series of conversations under COVID-19 Uh, on a page on our website called The Social Justice Response to COVID-19, and that's at irresistible.org slash COVID. Thank you to Jacob White and Zach Meyer for audio production, to Allison Thompson for social media, 
Irresistible podcast is supported by Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Learn more at calliopeia.org. See you next week.